The following episode of Annals on Call is brought to you by Annals of Internal Medicine. The views and opinions expressed by the hosts and participants during this episode are their own and do not necessarily reflect the views of the American College of Physicians, the editors of Annals of Internal Medicine, or the institutions that the speakers are affiliated with unless so identified. All relevant financial relationships have been mitigated. Information contained herein should never be used as a substitute for clinical judgment. For more episodes, links to CME and MOC, or to view disclosures, visit go.annals.org slash on-call. If that opioid can be transitioned to buprenorphine, you may be helping that patient because there's a decreased risk of respiratory suppression. And because buprenorphine is the only opioid not associated with the endocrinopathy you talked about. Welcome to Annals on Call, a podcast based upon articles from the Annals of Internal Medicine in which we discuss the implications of the article for you, the listener. This is Dr. Bob Centaur. I'm Professor Emeritus at the University of Alabama at Birmingham and former chair of the Board of Regents for the American College of Physicians. This episode of Annals on Call features an article titled The Use of Opioids in the Management of Chronic Pain, which is a synopsis of the 2022 uh, VA practice guideline on chronic pain. Joining us on the podcast is Dr. Leah Leish, who is the head of our addiction medicine program at uh, the University of Alabama at Birmingham and a member of the Division of General Internal Medicine. Thank you for listening to our podcast. Leah, thank you so much for uh, joining us on the podcast. You've impressed me so much with your knowledge and the, your ability to help patients who have opioid use disorder and, and other addictions. And this wonderful guideline came out from the uh, VA, where we both work at times, on chronic pain and opioids. And so I thought it'd be really worthwhile if you could share some of your wisdom with our audience. And I guess the first question is, why do we have such overuse of opioids for chronic pain? Well, that's a little bit of a twofold answer. So the the first and still standing answer is that chronic pain is very common and very costly. And so chronic pain consumes about 20% of office visits, contributes a ton to the medical healthcare costs of our nation. And we don't yet have phenomenal interventions for many patients. And so it's something that comes to providers very often, um, and they want very much to help. We don't have super wonderful interventions. And part of that is because we haven't yet become great at taking a biopsychosocial assessment of pain, which is what we're learning now is much more important because chronic pain is very complex and often involves um, not just the the pathology, the physical pathology of what's causing the pain, but also the impact of that upon the person's life, and then the impact of health disparities upon the person's life, and just a very sort of multi-pronged conundrum of problems that creates a worsening of pain in patients that's a little more difficult to tackle than the physical pathology of whatever's happening. Um, So there's that situation where all of that's going on in a boilerplate of decreased time per patient, increased patient volume, and, and a deep desire by physicians to help. Um, and then back in the late 90s, early 2000s, there was the push of pain-assisted vital sign. There was some misinformation around oxycodone and opioids and whether or not they are addictive. Some very small studies done on a small number of patients with acute pain 
prescribed low-dose opioids got extrapolated to chronic pain on high-dose opioids and, and prescribing started. So as I read the guideline, they really discourage us from starting with opioids for chronic pain. And maybe you could talk a little bit about that. And are there times that you really do have to go to opioids? So yes and yes. The, the framework I, I try to give trainees often is opioids can be seen as the salvage chemo of pain care. I am as likely to harm my patient with this as I am to help them, um, or perhaps more likely to harm them than to help them. But in some cases, I might still consider it. Um, it used to be that we considered opioids like the insulin of, of diabetes. So if someone's diabetes was bad enough and you tried these things, then surely insulin was great and it would come and take care of it. With opioids, we'd like people to try more evidence-based therapies first, but it's not just because we're trying to spare opioids. It's because those therapies have more evidence to support their efficacy. Those are the ones that actually work. And so it's, it's interesting. Oftentimes in primary care practices, patients will come in and they'll, they'll emphasize their pain and talk about how very severe their pain is or very dramatic their injury is. And I think that's because we've set this standard that if my pain is bad enough or my injury is bad enough, then I get opioids. And what I really work to do with patients is emphasize, if your pain is really bad and your injury is really bad, I really, really want to get you the therapies that work. And those therapies that work are cognitive behavior therapy. Depending upon the pain type and the injury, it might be anti-inflammatories, SNRIs, um, maybe muscle relaxers, and focus on the therapies that work. For patients who try those therapies, including you know, maybe injections, maybe physical therapy. They try those therapies, they're not effective, and they don't have certain risk factors. For instance, being young, having history of substance use disorder, then you might consider opioids. Again, not, not because it's a better therapy, but because you've reached a point of desperation. Does that make sense? Absolutely. But that leaves us to this. So let's say we've tried everything else, <laughs> or someone else has already put them on op opioids. Uh, a lot of times it's not the primary care physician. A lot of times it's urgent care or the emergency department or post-surgery. And they're already on opioids and they come to us and they say, that's the only thing that's going to work. If we're going to use mm -hmm. opioids, what opioids should we use and why? So there's a couple different categories. One is if you're starting that yourself, um, you're describing, you're not starting it, the patient's coming to you. Maybe this is subacute opioids, so post-procedure. And for the subacute opioids, you're deciding, is this going to be long-term opioid therapy or is it not? Um, and we try to not start new patients on long-term opioid therapy. The reason being, we now know that there are a lot of adverse effects of that, including increased long-term pain. Also, if they're full agonist opioids, which are all of the opioids other than buprenorphine, those are associated when used long-term with immunosuppression, adrenal insufficiency, hypogonadism, osteoporosis, um, and a lot of things that patients aren't really aware of and some providers aren't even aware of, and that we frankly don't know how to best manage at this point other than to taper or stop the opioids. And so we try not to cause patients those effects if we can avoid it. So if it's subacute pain, you would try and increase those multi-world approaches, get them off opioid. If they've been on opioids for a very long time, then you have to look at what's been happening. Do they have a sort of what you might think of as like a smart goal? Do they have a, um, a specific functional gain from this opioid therapy? Are they getting out of the house when they weren't getting out of the house? Are they socially interactive when they weren't socially interactive? 
are they back to work? And if they're having a game and they're not demonstrating aberrant behaviors that are concerning for risk of opioid overdose, um, so that's the more imminent risk of opioids, so to speak, is overdose and respiratory suppression, right? So we worry about that even in the short term. Then you may continue that therapy for a while, maybe years if they're not having aberrant behavior. But at every visit, I would still be addressing with the patient, hey, we know that if you're on this for a long time, we're going to cause these other side effects. And so one, what do you think about trying to decrease that dose on your own? Two, what do you think about engaging in these other therapies that maybe might help better now that you're farther out from that injury? Or, you know, just like we have better medicines now than we did 10, 15 years ago, many of the patients I inherited, um, they say, oh, well, I tried physical therapy in the past and it didn't work. And I say, well, when did you try it? And it was 15 or 20 years ago. <laughs> and the world of physical therapy has changed a lot in the past 15 to 20 years. We're doing a lot with neuromodulation and things that we just didn't offer before. And so I ask them, can you engage in those? And maybe that will help um, decrease some of this dependence upon opioids. The other thing we talk a lot to patients about, and that's specifically mentioned in the VA guidelines, is if someone's on an everyday opioid, if that opioid can be transitioned to buprenorphine, you may be helping that patient. One, because there's a decreased risk of respiratory suppression. And two, because buprenorphine is the only opioid of the opioids not associated with the endocrinopathies and the, the fracture, et cetera, that we just talked about. So you can get rid of some of those other adverse effects by switching to a buprenorphine formulation. That being said, it's important that providers educate themselves on the different buprenorphine formulations and their approximate OME equivalents. So a lot of providers aren't familiar with the buprenorphine formulations and will sometimes overdose buprenorphine because it's it's OME. There's not an official one. In fact, CDC says don't convert OME because it's something like 8 to 80. It's very variable. But at the lower ones, the, that initial 5 microgram transdermal patch is equivalent to like 0 to 30 OME. And so if we're thinking of that in Suboxone or buprenorphine naloxone, the one that most people are familiar with, that the lowest dose of buprenorphine naloxone is much higher than the, than the transdermal patches or the buccal formulations. In fact, the lowest dose of that buprenorphine naloxone is equivalent to somewhere around 80 or more OME. And so it's just important that when providers are doing that, they're doing it because it's safer for the patient, but that they're aware of what they're doing when they make that transition. Okay. You got to help me, Leah. I don't know what OME yeah. is. Can you oh, give I'm me? So sorry. Yeah, can, can you can you give me like uh, let's think of the most common opioids that we're seeing people use. We're mm -hmm. seeing oxycodone. We're seeing Demerol. We're seeing morphine. How do I compare all those to buprenorphine? Mm -hmm. So someone on hydrocodone, ten milligrams three times a day, would be equivalent to a buprenorphine patch of like five to maybe. 7.5 milligrams. The lowest dose of the sublingual buprenorphine naloxone that most people are familiar with for substance use disorder, that is equivalent to something like hydrocodone 10 eight times a day. And so it's a much higher dose than what most of our outpatient patients are on. That's the other thing is if you do have a patient on opioids or you're starting opioids, you know, the, the risk seems to be dose dependent, particularly when it comes to respiratory suppression, but there's also some thought that the endocrinopathies are dose dependent. And the, the, both the VA and the CDC say, once you get above 50 oral morphine equivalents or OME, so that's hydrocodone 10 five times a day, oxycodone 10 about three times a day, because oxycodone converts a little differently, or morphine up to 50 milligrams, 
once you get above that, the risks versus benefits get a, a lot more dicey. Like you're, you're actually far more likely to be giving them risks than benefits above that dose. Does that mean that everyone who's currently on that dose, you have to just rip them off down to it? No, no, they're already on the high dose and there's risks of tapering as well. Um, but it does mean if we're starting patients, once we hit that dose, we should sort of start to think of that, not as a hard stop, but as something like, the way I compare it is if they hit, if they hit that 50 morphine equivalents and their pain is uncontrolled, you might want to think of this as someone who you've started on insulin and they're still having major hyper and hypoglycemia, where you might say, I need an endocrinologist. Like if you're already up to 50 OME and the patient's still having horribly controlled pain, you definitely need to have them with an interdisciplinary pain team. They just probably need more care um, than is typically manageable in a, in a routine primary care setting. One of the things that I, I got out of this paper and from talking to you in the past is that we have to be very careful even when we use short-term opioids because they could become long-term. And I'll give you a great example. I have a patient on my service with 10 out of 10 pain due to a kidney stone. It's 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 real and he's really suffering. He can't sleep. When you're on service, how do you go about prescribing opioids for that short term to try to make sure that it doesn't become long-term? Right. So a lot of that is really intense patient education um, and supporting the patient. So one, we do know that the longer opioids are prescribed for acute pain, the more likely that pain will become chronic pain. And so I will often educate patients, you know, the reason that I don't want to prescribe this longer is not because I'm worried about overdose or because I'm worried that you'll develop an opioid use disorder. The reason I don't want to prescribe this is because I have really good data to say that continuing to prescribe it is actually going to make this pain last longer and hurt more. And neither you nor I want that. And so that does help sort of motivate the patient to decrease some on their own. And then the other important part is to support the patient in other multimodal pain care things. So adding the capsaicin cream, adding the, you know, lidocaine patches, the ice, the heat, talking with your interventional anesthesiologist, particularly for inpatient. Um, is there a block that could be done that might help you know, the patient not have so much pain until this injury heals or this kidney stone goes away or um, whatnot. So despite our best efforts, some mm-hmm. patients with chronic pain uh, do develop opioid addiction. One of the things that seems to be very scary is trying to mandate decreasing opioid do- doses. You do addiction medicine and you see plenty of patients who actually want to get off the opioids. They want to, they want to to get better. You see other patients who don't want to get off, but are almost mandated uh, to get off. How do you deal with that? And do some patients just have to continue taking the opioids because the addiction is so bad that if we try to take them away, there are going to be unintended bad consequences? In the clinic I work in, we manage patients in what we call the, the pain OUD or opioid use disorder we used to call it the chasm. Now we call it the spectrum. Um, and we'll sometimes talk about, is it big P, little A, like big pain, little addiction, or big A, little P, lots of pain, little, or lots of addiction, a little bit of pain. And the reality is the more concerned you are about a substance use disorder or specifically opioid use disorder, the more likely you should be getting that person on buprenorphine for pain or referring them um, to a methadone clinic so that they could get methadone in a, in a monitored fashion. Um, so to treat the opioid use disorder, and it will also help with the pain because, you know, they're, they're still receiving pain treatment and you're still supporting them with multimodal pain treatment and they're still on an opioid. If it's somewhere, 
you know, to the left of that, where it's a little bit, it's a lot of bit of pain and just a little bit of aberrant behavior. In general, um, what the VA recommends and CDC um, and what we do in our clinic is uh, monitor patients more closely. Um, and so we may monitor people, they may come in once a week, um, they may come in once every two weeks, and that's just to do pill counts, to do urine drug screen, to talk to the patient about their function, to talk to the patient about the biopsychosocial contributors. You know, the, the VA guideline is beautiful in that in its algorithm, it says, have aberrant behaviors developed? And the first arrow it has is to go back and redo a biopsychosocial assessment. We had a patient recently, um, had been on long-term opiate therapy, had not had problems, had been on a stable dose for years, had a peripheral neuropathy, and suddenly began coming in um, and just demanding higher dose opioids um, and had, had in the past been on high dose opioids and had a problem with it. And we said, you know, we don't think that that's a great idea. He began essentially saying the pain was making him suicidal. And we offered a lot of other things. And if, if this is happening with other clinicians and eventually got pinged to me. And I, I looked at the chart and I said, what has changed? I mean, what, is, what has changed in this man's life? It's the same injury. It's the same peripheral neuropathy. He's been on the same dose for the past four years. Why, why now? Why all of a sudden? And when we repeated the biocycle of social assessment, he was about to become homeless. He was having, this, uh, uh, I think Dr. Cortez will call this, oh, I forget what he calls it, like a moral injury. <laughs> and it was creating chaos in his life, which was exacerbating his pain experience. We connected him to housing. And once he got housing, his pain was well, all better on the same dose of opioids that he had been on before. So our, our mantra general is like, if it's working at the dose it's working on, even if they're on high doses, we keep them there. If they're having aberrant behaviors, we first repeat that biopsychosocial assessment. If it looks like it's OUD, we switch to medications for opioid use disorder. Finally, uh, and because you do addiction uh, medicine, when do we need to call you? So if we, if, it'd be great if every primary care physician had an addiction medicine specialist that they could call up when he or she was having a problem. I work in the same hospital as you at times. When should I call you about this? I mean, the nice thing is with the, the, the new changes in regulations, there is no more X waiver. So anyone can start buprenorphine. I would say if you've never transitioned someone from long, long-term long opioid therapy to buprenorphine and the patient's on a long-acting agent, like slow-release morphine or whatever, you should probably call someone who has experience with that. If they're on a short-acting agent, you can probably do it yourself and you can manage the OUD yourself um, if you would like. We all can do that now. It's pretty easy to learn about. It's wonderful. I would say if you have them switched over to medications for opioid use disorder and they are still having aberrant behaviors, for sure call an addiction specialist. Or if you're just needing a little handholding through the first few people that you treat with medications for opioid use disorder, call the addiction specialist. Um, or if they're having other, so a lot of consults we get are also like urine drug screen interpretation and whatnot. There's really great resources on uh, pcssnow.org, um, which is a free um, provider clinical support service network that you can get a lot of help from. Well, Leah, thank you so much, because I think what you've done is you've framed the management of chronic pain and the management of the opioids and taking care of the patients and doing what I know our infectious disease colleagues are always so good at. And, and uh, I was thinking of them when you were talking about how you take a biopsychosocial history and realize that when things are getting worse, you have to explain why they're getting worse. And I thought that was yeah. beautiful when you, when you said that. And I think this is going to be helpful 
to all of us who often get frustrated by chronic pain. And uh, maybe I'll get a little less frustrated now that I have this information. So thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very, very much. I'm a big fan of treating both OUD and pain like diseases, like we treat everything else. Now it's time for Bob's Pearls. The argument for trying to avoid chronic agonist opioids is that they do lead to side effects. Uh, Dr. Leish did a very nice job of explaining these side effects and uh, trying to help our patients not need chronic agonist opioids. In addition to the problem of side effects, uh, long-term opioids actually can often worsen pain. So we're looking for options of other ways to control the pain while we're continuing the opioids assuming that uh, they are using the opioids in a responsible way and continuing to work and do the things that they would be doing if they're not on opioids. Sometimes uh, switching patients to buprenorphine can uh, help them uh, decrease the side effects. Perhaps the most important thing that she shared with us is that when someone comes in and has been on stable opioids, but says they need more and is having problems, that that is a clue that we need to do a careful assessment of what has changed. We uh, should not react negatively, but rather try to understand the patient's need for those opioids. Thank you very much for listening to our podcast. Information contained herein should never be used as a substitute for clinical judgment. For more episodes, links to CME and MOC, or to view disclosures, visit go.annals.org slash on call.